About Empathy is a podcast about patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experiences with serious illness. This podcast gives voice to their stories. With each episode, we hope these engaging discussions inspire you to have more empathic, authentic, and compassionate conversations. I'm Dr. Irene Ying, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dr. Dori Sekaracha, and I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani. For years, we have worked together, taught together, and learned from each other in our roles as palliative care physicians. Thank you for listening. Dr. Ziming Jia joined the Tammy Latner Center for Palliative Care at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto as a clinician investigator in September of 2021. Prior to joining the Toronto Palliative Care community, Dr. Jia completed his family medicine residency and palliative care clinical fellowship at the University of Alberta and a research fellowship at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Through a combination of personal and clinical experiences, Dr. Jia developed an interest in health inequities that Asian immigrants experience at the end of life. He refined these academic interests into a formal research program during his research fellowship in Boston. Now he leads several institutionally, nationally, and internationally funded initiatives to understand the model of palliative care delivery among Asian Canadians, linguistic and paralinguistic elements of intercultural palliative care communication, and culturally tailored palliative care training in Asia. Now, I have the pleasure of working with Dr. Jia at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, and I'm so happy to have you here today with us, Z. Thank you, Irene. So your research is focused on cross-cultural communication, especially with the Chinese population. And I know that a big reason why this is the case is because of your personal experiences when you were younger. Can you give us a bit of a background of your life and your experiences that led you to where you are today? I would be very happy to do that for you, Irene, and for Giovanna, for Dori, and your audiences. And thank you for that very generous introduction. I don't know if I deserve all of it. A bit about my background and how my personal experiences led to where I am. I'm actually sitting in a condominium in Calgary, Alberta right now. And this is the same condominium that I lived in for the majority of my high school years. And I'm saying that because it was also in this condominium that I learned my father was dying and that I received an urgent phone call from the hospice just north of us to come and visit him and to spend the night with him in his last hours of life. I would describe our family as a first-generation Chinese immigrant family who moved to Canada in the late 90s in the search for a better life, as well as more educational opportunities for myself. And after our family had settled in Calgary, Alberta, in the early 2000s, our family was devastated to learn about the news of a tumor that was growing very rapidly in my father's stomach. At that point, my parents had separated and he was just about to embark on a new career and a new relationship. And so the news caught him at a really vulnerable moment in his life where he didn't have extended insurance and that he needed emergent surgery to remove what was really an unknown type of cancer at that time. I found out later it's actually neuroendocrine carcinoma. And so his journey through the local academic tertiary hospital and subsequent interactions with the oncology department really 
shaped my initial impressions of the healthcare system. And among those impressions, I think what our family was left with was one, thank goodness it was free. Two, I don't think the healthcare system really knew what was happening within our home. And then three, we didn't really know what was to come, what to expect. And so when my father's illness came back after aggressive chemotherapy, aggressive surgery, we were left in this abyss or this unknown of what exactly we should be doing as a family, what we should be relying on our caregivers or family members in China to do, and what we should be expecting our healthcare system to provide. And so it wasn't really until a home care nurse came by, did her assessment, and recommended that he move into a hospice facility that we've understood that there is a type of care for patients that have this level of illness that are suffering in the way that he is sort of sitting in his soiled undergarments with a son who was trying to avoid it all and didn't have the strength to care for him for his basic activities of daily living. My father, soon after the recommendation, moved into a hospice because he was already financially drained. He took out a quarter, if not half, of his life insurance money to pay for our rent, to pay for our food, and he had to put his treasured home onto the market with the goal of just getting the mortgage off our back. So when our family first stepped into the hospice, I think there were mixed feelings within the family. For my father and my aunt, who had come from China to care for my father, there may have been feelings of relief. For me, it was a lot of anger and fear. Fear that we are about to lose a really core member of our family, and anger that I couldn't do anything about it. The way that I directed my anger was to focus on my academic studies, because that's what my father treasured, and to also just distance myself from the medical institutions and the facilities that was caring for him at the time, because I equated the facilities as hastening his death. And so I didn't want any part of that. And because of those mixed feelings, from the day that he stepped foot in the hospice to three months later when he passed away, I only visited him once, and that was the night when he passed. So I share that story because of the complex circumstances in which immigrant families could be navigating end-of-life care, hospice care, and palliative care, and to also pay tribute to my father, who now I'm starting to learn, did a lot of advanced care planning on his own, organizing international caregivers, planning his funeral, helping his friends cope with everything that's going on. And I think he's an incredibly strong individual that I'm still learning about after he passed more than a decade ago. And so you can tell based on my emotional experience with my father's end-of-life journey that I really did not have an affinity to palliative or end-of-life or hospice care when I first started medical school. I feared it. I hated it. Um, I didn't know what it was, and I thought it was substandard care. It wasn't until I worked with a phenomenal set of mentors, family physicians in Edmonton through my family medicine residency that 
I re-experienced palliative care, what cradle-to-grave care meant, how uh, these physicians felt about palliative and hospice care, and how despite the challenges and the complexities of the emotional and the illness journey, that these physicians had the best of intentions in mind. And that was important to me. And the question that continues to sort of reappear over and over in my mind through my family medicine residency, how can these compassionate physicians' actions and voices and the styles in which they communicate be perceived as malicious and filled with malintent by family members? And so I wanted to learn and perfect the craft of not doing that. And therefore, I pursued a palliative care fellowship to learn how I can demonstrate my intentions through the best communication skills and behaviors. But even as I pursued my clinical training, I was still faced with very similar intercultural exchanges, misalignment of intentions, misalignment or misinterpretation of emotions, and an ignorance or disregard for the economic, financial, social, and cultural context of immigrant families when they're navigating this particularly difficult part of their healthcare journey. See, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm wondering if you could tell us and our listeners a little bit about how you have used all these insights you've provided us with and how you provide care for patients and their families from different cultural backgrounds. So things that I'm constantly thinking about in my initial consultation, whether it's when I'm trying to explain what palliative care is or taking a history or asking about symptoms, I'm trying to figure out how does this patient and family view power dynamics with a clinician? Do they want an egalitarian approach where we create a magic bubble to perform shared decision-making or... Do they perceive this power distance as especially large and sacred for the clinician to do their best and make the best recommendations? I try to tease that out. Yeah. Another dimension as I think about individualism versus collectivism and relational autonomy in the middle, which is to say, where is the locus of decision-making within this family? Who are our trusted cultural brokers within the family and the community? Sometimes it's friends. Sometimes they don't have matriarchs or patriarchs in the same way that come and take over decision-making as sometimes that would happen in China. So try to scope out the decision-making dynamics. The next two things that I find is particularly fun to do and difficult to do is how do these individuals think about indulgence and orientation in terms of time? Are these individuals who appeal to the idea of not suffering or minimizing suffering in the moment, or do they see value in suffering to secure something long-term? Are they always preparing in the moment through action, words, interaction for the long term? Or are they more interested in what we can do and offer them in the moment for the moment? And then the next dimension that I think about is this idea of tolerance of ambiguity. Sometimes that comes across as stubbornness, 
personality, walking multiple roads. Sometimes it's just walking a very narrow road. And these dimensions help me understand what language I should be attentive to throughout a palliative care consultation to help me map out the language and the values and the goals in which I should be responding to or helping patients and family summarize or tease out and to help them align with what the system can offer and what it means to translate those to medical decision-making. We usually like to end our podcast by asking the question, if only they knew, and by they, you know, generally we mean our healthcare learners, nursing students, medical students, or even those who are already in practice. And so I know you've already given us so much, but if you were to tell our listeners, you know, if only they knew, I guess in your situation, your perspective would be how to provide more culturally aware care. What would you want our listeners to know or to take home with them? One thing I would love for our clinicians to take away would be to ask, what are our institutional ideals in which our healthcare systems and our communication strategies are designed towards and for? And how do we make that transparent to our patients and families and to those who are on the receiving end of what we have to offer? Yes. I'm really struck by what Deborah Tenen has taught me, which is it's the sharing of the process. It's the sharing of the contextualization cues that help parties who are in an intercultural exchange to feel satisfied. And when we don't share the structure, the reasons behind and our intentions or make transparent our intentions in the way that we conduct ourselves, that's where some of that misalignment, malalignment, the perceived malintention could happen. So I wish I knew perhaps we need to start with ourselves and to question what's been going by unnoticed within our practice and how does that feel for our patients and families. Well, Z, as usual, you've given me a lot to think about. I want to thank you so much for joining us today and teaching us so much. Yes, thank you. I look forward to an opportunity to meet all of you in person. You're listening to About Empathy. This season of About Empathy has been funded by the Gold Define Award through the Tammy Latner Center for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. The Temi Latner Center for Palliative Care's vision is to allow patients and their families to experience a seamless system of caring through the embodiment of its core values of humanity, collaboration, innovation, and communication. To learn more, visit tlcpc.org. Welcome back to About Empathy. It's always great talking to Z. I always find that he has so many wonderful reflections and lessons for me to think about. So what stuck out for the both of you in terms of what Z was saying about taking like a culturally sensitive approach to patient care? I think a lot of what he was getting at was this idea of cultural humility, of having a sense of, you know, what your own 
beliefs and perceptions are and trying to be aware of your biases and the biases that you hold and being curious really about other people's perspectives or beliefs and their culture and how that impacts their decision making about their illness and how they approach their illness. What do you think, Dory? Yeah, I thought that he brought so many good points to the table. I like the way he talked about when he's asking questions, he's trying to be mindful of not thinking about an idealized patient. And that made me think about we do come to the table from palliative care with our experience and what we learned. And what we learned is a very specific style of medicine that is a Western approach. And we have to really try to keep that in the back of our minds. I think we can do the best we can to understand another person's culture, but we have to ask a lot of questions. You talked about being humble, I think is very, very important all the time in palliative care, but especially if this is a different culture, then you know it's important to really step back and ask a lot of questions. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And move away from the idea that you're the expert in that realm. That's right. Because you're yes. not the expert in that realm. And so I think it's that curiosity and asking questions, yes. being motivated to learn about the patients in that way, and then to incorporate that into the decisions that are happening around their care. Mm -hmm. Irene, can I ask you a little bit about that? So do questions help? So asking questions about how are decisions about healthcare made in your family? Or is there anyone else I should be talking to to help you in terms of your medical condition? Like, so asking those types of questions, does that help? In the sense that similar to having a code status discussion, I find like mm. you don't know unless you ask. And so I always give the opportunity to the patient to share again, you know, what their decision-making preferences are. But the problem is that I find that oftentimes, especially in non-Western cultures, the answer doesn't necessarily reflect a full version of the truth. And so like, I think an example I can give of that is, you know, in many cultures, perhaps there is a power hierarchy in terms of gender, right? Like men and women. And so, you know, a patient may defer to the oldest son, for example. But, you know, when you get to know the family and you gauge with them more, you really start to understand who understands the patient the most, who's been at the bedside, who's probably in the best position to provide support for the patient and who the patient may even in some ways prefer to be the decision maker, although mm -hmm. not in a formal way based on their culture or based on mm -hmm. even the law. And so hearing what the patient's saying, but leaving room for reading the room and understanding, you know, what the social dynamics at play really are. I always think of that. We often use that term active listening, mm. but there's also active watching, right? Good term. Because a lot of communication comes around in, you know, nonverbal communication and being attuned to that nonverbal communication. And it's interesting just coming back to something you said before to Irene about culture. And that just reminds me and I think is a good reminder for all of us 
And I think it's something we know, but we often need reminders because we have biases is that no culture is a monolith, right? Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. there's going to be differing perspectives and ways of being within a culture. And so I think that's just a good reminder for us that we need to check our biases when we're meeting patients and families and loved ones that their decision making will likely deviate from what our biases are about that culture or that perspective. That's a good point. It's so true. Knowing some of the the general cultural norms is helpful Mm -hmm. for us in approaching the patient. But Mm -hmm. I think if you rely on those too deeply, then you've kind of swung too far. I think that's a great point. So just finding that right balance. Try not to make assumptions, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We've all encountered situations where perhaps our medical legal obligations in terms of disclosure might deviate from a patient or a family's preferences. Mm -hmm. So this idea that, and this happens, I would say relatively often, is that we as practitioners get taken aside by a family member or a loved one who says, please don't disclose any variety of things. Please don't disclose the cancer diagnosis, that the disease is metastatic, that they're close to end of life. And that could be for many reasons and, you know, often cited as taking away hope or hastening their death. And that comes up quite a bit. So in your practices, how have you approached those types of requests? That's such a tough situation to be in. I'd say the further I am along in practice, the more varied my approach has been. I don't have like a one size fits all approach to that kind of scenario anymore, which I think I used to. Like in the past, my response would pretty universally be like, it's up to the patient, Mm. right? I'm going to ask the patient. I'm going to ask the patient how much they want to know, who they want to make decisions. Now I'm probably a little bit more varied and nuanced in my approach. If it's a family I've known for a while, a patient I've known for a while, I can tell that there's deep love, deep regard throughout the whole family. Then, you know, I may not necessarily be as overt in asking the patient, like, what do you want to know? Do you have any questions for me? (laughs) You know, who do you want to be your decision maker? I might take more of a passive approach, which is like, hey, you know, I've been talking to so-and-so about your medical updates and they have been the ones guiding the medical team around decisions. How do you feel about that? Are you okay with that? Now, not everyone may be comfortable with that approach. Like some people may read the legal requirements a little bit more by the book. And by that, I mean like every in Canada, every province has their own laws around decision-making and who makes decisions for their patients. And in general, it's the patient themselves, unless they're not capable, in which case there's generally a hierarchy. And so, you know, you may find in your own practice that you feel the need to, you know, adhere a little bit more tightly to that. Mm. But I find over time, Z throughout the term relational autonomy, which I know is kind of like a big word to just throw out. But at the end of the day, what it really means is that we are not entities that exist siloed off from everyone else in our world. Like we are who we are because of the relationships that we have with other people. And those relationships are important to us and they influence the way that we make decisions. And so it's not all about like autonomy, capital A, you're the only person, disregard everybody else. Mm. So that's been my Mm -hmm. approach, but I don't know how you guys feel about it. I like to understand why the person's so worried Mm. And often what I remember doing is saying, why don't we go talk to your loved one together? And I promise you, I'm not going to say anything unless they ask me a question. I won't lie to them, but 
you can be there so you can hear what I'm going to say. But first, help me to understand what you're worried about. And then let's go talk together so that you could see. And I promise to be very gentle if they ask me that question. It's very hard. There is no one size Mm -hmm. fits all for that. Like, Irene, you were saying how well you know the family. That's so important as well. Mm -hmm. If this is not a family you know well and you've got a sense because you've been doing that active listening and watching that maybe this one relative who has the concern that's not what's generally going on in the family. So it's really Mm -hmm. hard to tell. But I feel like inviting the important people into the room to hear the discussion all together and always being respectfully and gently honest Mm -hmm. hardly ever gets you into trouble. And I think just to build on what both of you are saying, I also let people know that I will never go into the room without you or behind your back to reveal or disclose information. So that's exactly what you were getting at, Dory. I just want people to have a sense that, you know, I won't betray your trust, but let's work together to have this discussion Mm -hmm. in a way that's respectful of both the patient and the loved ones who are involved in the care. That's a really good point, Giovanna. And I guess I should go back and kind of rephrase the example I gave around the patient where I said, you know, we've been talking to your daughter or your family member, I would say usually that happens in the case where I'm being introduced and that's already been going on (laughs) Mm -hmm. where everyone's been talking to everyone but the patient. Yeah. But yes, like when I meet a patient and I'm breaking bad news or disclosing information, agreed, like that trust in knowing that the patient at the end of the day is the main locus of control, Mm. even if they prefer, you know, decision making to fall somewhere else. That's a decision that they can make as well. The other thing I think is really important for me over time that I've recognized is like a lot of the communication skills that we've learned during our training are really steeped in Western ideals and culture, you know, including when I was being trained, a lot of the times, a lot of the research was telling us that hearing bad news, but in a compassionate way, doesn't impact a patient's sense of well-being. But then, you know, those studies are all mostly Western based. Mm. And so it always got me thinking about, does that change in different cultures? And I wonder, and I don't think we have the answer to that yet. And just that question has just caused me to just sort of pause a little bit and just maybe think that there's still a big gap in our knowledge. And that's kind of changed my approach a little bit as well. I think it's so important when we go to the table that we know there are gaps in our Mm. knowledge. And all we could do is the very best we can do. We were trained in a Western approach, so that's what we have. But being open and, you know, always challenging ourselves to learn Mm -hmm. I think can be helpful, right? I think being aware of our own biases when we enter that room can be important. And admitting to a patient sometimes if we don't know the answer to a question or tell me more about that so I can do better Mm -hmm. in what I provide for you can be helpful too. And as we wrap up, I think the other thing is, is even the most, I think, basic of assumptions are potentially false. So The assumption that people want to be without pain or the assumption that people want to be free of suffering. Yes, I think most people would want that. But there are some people who 
based on their cultural or, or spiritual beliefs, where, you know, suffering is part of their journey yep. in life and taking on that suffering is important. And so I think it comes down to even the most basic of things, right? And even though we would assume the majority of people would want X, Y, or Z, that does not apply to everyone. And I think that's about being curious and humble in the patient interaction and knowing what's important to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks so much to Z for coming on the show and talking and speaking with us. Yes. And as usual, I've learned so much from you ladies. Same here. Thanks, everyone. Our clinical experiences have taught us that there is much to be learned in the stories of the people we care for and work with. We hope the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic conversations. We'll be back next week with another story. Subscribe to About Empathy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, or listen on our website, aboutempathy.com. When you subscribe and rate our podcast, it helps others find us. Each episode will be added to your app when we publish. Please share our podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and health professionals. You can find the notes from today's episode and information about our show on the website. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sekaracha, and Irene Ying. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. The podcast is recorded virtually and funded by the Gold Define Award through the Temi Latner Centre for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. Visit us at aboutempathy.com.